Hey everybody, welcome to First Free Church Online Edition. I am so glad that you're here. I, it, I wish that I could see you, and so do those photos and let us see you, because um, I really don't know who's there. My name's Kevin Crosley. I'm a pastor on staff here. You all know why we're doing this online instead of being here in the room together. Um, it's possible that you call this church your home. And if that's the case and you're watching this, then hey, way to go, way to be faithful and tune in and be part of the church anyway. It's possible because this week I invited a ton of people. I invited over 3,000 people that I'm linked into on LinkedIn. So if you're watching, it's great. Shoot me a note and let me know. I invited my entire Radcliffe Place neighborhood. It turns out it's a lot easier to invite your friends to online church than ask them to get up on Sunday morning and drive to Manchester. And so I'm gonna encourage you, as we're doing this online church, do that. Just get on your Facebook or your social media or your LinkedIn and say, hey, if you can't get to your church, our church is online on Sunday morning. We don't know what God intends to do through this time. Now, here's the thing. Um, some of the things that we do on a normal Sunday morning are still available. For example, we have a translation app. And you can go to onehub.church and get a translation in any language that you'd like to follow along in. So let me encourage you to do that. If you would prefer to follow along in the message in a different language, just go to onehub.church and you can get a translation. At that same location, onehub.church, you can get to the YouVersion app, which has all of the scripture that we'll be using today. Or you can go to YouVersion and look for events and First Free Church. I want to admit right up front that this is weird. I mean, I am standing in an empty room. I got a couple of friends running cameras, but other than that, it's just me and you. And so, it's also strange that I've spent a couple of months preparing to talk about politics and the Undivided series. And the title of my message was Undivided Church, which is a great oxymoron. When we planned this, this sermon back in the fall, we expected that this would be a time when we were in the middle of politics and primaries and that some of the 300 Democrats that were running back in the fall would still be here and that it would be the number one news story. We had no idea that we'd be in the middle of a global health crisis. But God knew. And so this morning, I've structured my, my sermon in three parts. There's a prologue with some scripture that I think is really helpful for me today. There's the body of the sermon, which is the focus on politics and Christianity and how those two go together. And then I have an epilogue. And I've even stuck a bibliography in there. So let's get started. I want to start with a verse that is familiar to most of you. And if you haven't seen it on the wall of a neighbor's house or maybe your own house, um, you've probably seen it in Facebook posts or Instagram and that's Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now this is true today, just like it was true for the people in Israel, when God instructed Jeremiah to write them a letter. 
and send it to those that have been taken into exile. So let's look at the passage a little bit more closely, understanding the context that they are in when God delivers this powerful promise. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, and prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with a bunch of guys that had gone as ambassadors to King Nebuchadnezzar from, King, um, from Zedekiah. And this first deportation from Israel to Babylon is dated to about 605 B.C., and also in this deportation are some people that you can read about in the Bible. Daniel is in this deportation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in this deportation. In fact, this is the same Nebuchadnezzar that throws those three guys into the fiery furnace. So that gives you a picture of the political and cultural environment that the Israelites are going into when they're deported to Babylon. To say the least, these are extremely unusual times for the children of Israel. So this is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Here it is. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the fruit they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. In other words, God is saying, make your lives here in Babylon. You're in this for the long haul. Don't expect a short answer to these difficulties. So they're in Babylon, and they're going to be there for a while. How does God instruct them to relate to the Babylonians that are all around them? Verse 7 says, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. That's amazing. God's promising them they're going to be there a long time, and he says, work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Pray for its welfare. This is hostile territory, and they are captives. And God says, settle in make a life. Work and pray for this country that I've brought you to. Let's keep going. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now apparently there were a lot of voices claiming that the captivity would be short and then they'd be on their way home and back to normal life. Jeremiah's letter says different. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things that I have promised. And I will bring you home again. You ready? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. 
I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. The Israelites' lives had been completely disrupted. They were conquered by a foreign king. They were taken into captivity in a foreign land. God had plans for the Israelites, but those plans would take 70 years to be fulfilled. But let's not forget that God was faithful and active during those 70 years. He was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was in the lion's den with Daniel. We don't know how long these present trials that we're going through are going to last, but we do know that God is faithful and active in the midst of them. In the meantime, the instructions to us are the same as those to the Israelites. Work for the peace and prosperity of this country and pray for its welfare. It's totally okay for us to claim Jeremiah 29.11 and to write it on our walls and our Facebook posts as long as we're willing to work and pray for the welfare of the place where God has placed us. Let me pray. God, I pray that as we dive into your word and look at how you would have us to be involved in our country, that those who are in this service this morning would feel your presence, would experience your peace, and would have a confidence of your, your hand on them and your activeness in the midst of these challenging times. You are our only hope. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk about politics and what it looks like to be a Christian in the U.S. in 2020 and how we should or shouldn't be involved in political things. But first, let me be honest with you. When I planned the sermon, expected all of you to be here in the room with me, I had expected to begin with a joke. And it's a joke that I heard Ronald Reagan tell when I was 16 years old. And um, it goes something like this. A man was driving down a country road. He was going about 60 miles an hour when he looked out his window and he saw a chicken running alongside his car. And as he looked closer, he was amazed to see that the chicken had three legs. Well, about the time he was trying to figure this all out, the chicken sped up ahead of his car and turned into a road that led to a farmhouse. And so the man, needing to know what was going on, slowed down and he followed the chicken in, parked, and found the farmer. He said, listen, this is going to sound crazy, but did a chicken just come running in here? The farmer said, yep, sure enough did. He said, now this is the really weird part, but did that chicken have three legs? Yeah, sure enough did. Well, why? Well, let me explain it. You see, me and the missus, we both like the drumstick. And that was all well and good until Junior came along, but it turns out Junior likes the drumstick too. And so, a few years back, I started breeding my chickens with three legs. Well, that's amazing. That's incredible. How do they taste? Well, I don't know. I've never been able to catch one. <laughs> all right, that's enough. Um, Thank you for the laugh track. Uh, let's be honest, that's probably the only way that that joke gets that much of a laugh. 
Um, but if you're laughing at home, now would be a great time to take a picture and post it with hashtag firstfreestl or hashtag and hashtag, hashtag church at home. Because I'd love to see the three of you that laughed at that joke. There is a point to the joke. Humor has always been very important to me. In 1980, I found myself supporting candidate Reagan because he was funny. In 1984, I voted in my first presidential election for President Reagan because I agreed with some of his policies and my parents supported him and frankly, because he was funny. But by admitting that, it may cause you to say, hey, then why are you teaching on politics? Which is a good question. And so to answer that, I've done something unusual and prepared a bibliography that shows some of the sources that I've used over the last few months in preparing for this message. This first book is called Politics According to the Bible by Wayne Grudem. And it's a giant treatment of 60 different political issues studied through the lens of Scripture. Now, Grudem's a professor and a theologian. He's taught at Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School for more than 20 years. Um, and he gives as thorough a treatment to our political issues today as I was able to find. The second book is called Love Your Enemies, and it was written by Arthur Brooks. Now, Brooks is the former president of the American Enterprise Institute. He's a professor at Harvard now, and he may also be one of the bravest people in the entire country. Here's why. Arthur Brooks was the guest speaker at this year's National Prayer Breakfast. And he stood at the podium with Donald Trump on his right and Nancy Pelosi on his left, and he preached about Christ's words to love your enemies. That's brave. The third book is Reclaiming Hope by Michael Ware. The subtitle is Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. Now, Michael Ware served in the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives during President Obama's first term. He's an evangelical Christian who worked to advance, advance initiatives on adoption and anti-human trafficking, among, among many others. I got a great quote from John Stott's book, The Message of the Sermon on the Mount, and I even have a Dumbledore quote coming up. But I want to be clear, not making any statements about your personal convictions regarding Harry Potter. So now, you know some of the sources that have influenced my thinking. It's time to take a look at what's happened in American politics over the past three decades. And I want to start in 1994. So Bill Clinton's president, Nancy Kerrigan, and Tanya Harding are in the news. And we all watched a high-speed chase of a white Ford Bronco on TV. And politically, the country looked like this. Now, this is a chart based on data from a survey conducted by the Pew Research Center several times since 1994. And the axis goes from consistently liberal, appropriately on the far left, to consistently conservative, way over here on the far right. The blue represents how Democrats and those that lean Democrat answered the questions. And the red represents how Republicans and those that lean Republican answered the questions. The gray in the middle is the overlap between the two groups. And the vertical lines show the median score for Democrats and Republicans. So I want you to take note 
of the distance between the median responses of Democrats and Republicans. And we're going to move to 2004. So in 2004, George W. Bush won a second term. The final report on Iraq found no weapons of mass destruction, and the Cardinals were in the World Series. They played the Red Sox, but we're not going to say any more about that. Politically, watch as we go from 1994 to 2004. Now, the gap between the Democrats and the Republicans is about the same. Where is it? There it is. But the whole country shifts a bit to the left. Now, not far enough left for John Kerry. How about if we move another 10 years to 2014 and see where that takes us? In 2014, we're halfway through President Obama's second term. Darren Wilson, Michael Brown, and the city of St. Louis are in the news. The San Francisco Giants won the World Series again, thanks in part to performance-enhancing drugs. And there are some significant shifts in the political landscape. So watch as we go from 2004 to 2014. Look at the growth in the gap between Democrats and Republicans. They're farther apart than at any time in the past. But wait, most of us remember 2017. President Trump was inaugurated. Mueller began an investigation. Kofefe, hashtag Me Too, and opioids captured our attention. And in August, we all looked up in the sky to watch the sun disappear. And the country moved farther apart politically. So here's 2017. Remember, that shift happened in only three years. If you feel like the country is more politically divided than it's been in the last 40 years, it's because the country is more politically divided than it's been in the last 40 years. Here at First Free Church, we're in the fifth week of our Undivided series. And we've worked our way through the four buckets of belief. We've talked about dogma. That's the essential beliefs that are necessary to be a Christian. They cover creation and the fall of man, redemption and restoration. In short, the gospel and Christ's work. We talked about doctrine. Those beliefs that our church holds that define us as a local Christian community. And we saw how all of the dogma beliefs fit within the doctrine and are part of that. But some of the beliefs, important things fall short of dogma and fit firmly in the doctrine bucket. It really is worth going back and watching those past messages if you missed any of them. To be a member of our local church, we expect that there'll be alignment in the belief around dogma and doctrine. But convictions and preferences are different. At First Free, we say we major on the majors, the dogma and the doctrine, and we don't divide over other issues and beliefs, like convictions and preferences. That's one of the things that I think makes this a great church. Now, let's look at politics and political beliefs. The, pol the political issues that are most important today make up a long list, and they include the protection of life, family and marriage, economics, the environment, national defense, foreign policy, immigration, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, safety nets for those in need, racial division, and of course, the management of national health crises and emergencies. Now, we could take each of these and the dozens of subtopics underneath them and discuss which buckets of belief they fit in. 
Now, as I've looked at this, I've struggled to find any that fit in the dogma bucket. Well, let's not miss the significance of that. We live in a country that is not in direct conflict with the central beliefs of Christianity and the gospel. We live in a country that calls church services essential services. Thank God for this significant blessing. There are a few issues that could fit in the doctrine bucket. For example, part of our doctrine includes the EFCA Statement on Human Sexuality, which is very clear from a doctrine perspective about the definition of marriage. Our doctrine defines marriage as between one man and one woman, and it bases this on strong biblical foundations. However, when you move from the definition of marriage to discussing what a national government or a state government should do about marriage, what policies and laws they should impose, then you move quickly to the convictions bucket. In fact, most of the issues that are debated in politics today fit squarely in that convictions bucket. Now let me be clear. This is important. Convictions are important, strongly held beliefs. And Christians believe that they are informed by Scripture and by the Holy Spirit. I am in no way saying that these are issues that are not important and that our convictions on political issues should be set aside. Let's remember what Adam said a couple of weeks ago. God holds you accountable for your convictions, but you can't hold anyone else accountable for your convictions. I am saying that a central theme of the Undivided series is that different Christians have different convictions and they're still Christians. Again, Adam said it well two weeks ago. The beliefs that unite us, dogma and doctrine, are greater than the personal convictions that divide us. This is, or at least should be, true for political convictions as well. So let's go back to the political division that exists in our country today. Now, if we look at the large Christian groups in the country from a Democrat or Republican perspective, it looks something like this. Evangelical Protestants, the largest group in the category that best fits first free, are about 60% either Republican or lean Republican, according to the Pew Research Center data. Catholics and mainline Protestants are somewhere in the middle, and historically black Protestant churches and pro black Protestant Christians are about 80% Democrat or lean Democrat. Now, my son, who works in the Missouri Senate, pointed out that Democrat doesn't necessarily mean liberal, and Republican doesn't necessarily mean conservative. But it is clear that different Christians have different political convictions. So what does the undivided church look like in such a divided climate? What can we do to represent Christ and build God's kingdom in our country, in a country that's so divided by such strong convictions? I have three suggestions that will let the church with a capital C, have the impact in our country that we are intended to have. First, we need to recognize our fellow Christians across the political spectrum. Romans says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the church with a capital C. That's the point of this entire undivided series. We are the body of Christ. We are to be united in glorifying God and being his hands and his feet in the world. We are not to be divided over preferences or convictions, even political convictions. 
One of my best friendships that I ever had with a coworker was during the time that I worked for Sigma Aldrich. And my friend Rob is a Catholic who loves Jesus. And we would have the best conversations about how Christ lives in us and through us. Now, we were both aware of the doctrinal differences that separate Catholics and Protestants, but we were more aware of the fact that we were brothers in Christ. This country and this world need a church that functions as the body of Christ. That's definitely true in politics as in other areas of life. Now, John Stott's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount puts it this way. He's talking about when Jesus said, you are the salt of the world, here's what Stott says. Christians are set in a secular society by God to hinder this decay process. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into meat, to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question is, where is the salt? Second, we need to lead with love. One of the most negative aspects of our current political division is the growing contempt that each side has for the other. Arthur Schopenhauer, a German philosopher, defined contempt as the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. The unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. As Christians, in our dogma bucket is the belief that God has created man in his image and that each person is an image bearer of God. We can't believe in the worthlessness of anyone and we can't behave in person or online, like those on the other side of the argument are worthless. Quite the contrary. Jesus said, you've heard that the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. We should lead with the love of Christ. That doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate for our convictions, but we should do it with grace, speaking the truth in love. Finally, we need to get involved in politics and especially with those of your own political party. Now here's that Harry Potter quote. Here's that Harry Potter quote that I promised you. Dumbledore says, "It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but a great deal more to stand up to your friends." Now let me show you how this can work in the political realm. In preparing for this message, I got a chance to sit down with Rod Jetton. Now, Rod was the Speaker of the Missouri House from 2005 to 2009, and it was an incredibly challenging time for him. Rod describes the challenges in his book, Success Can Kill You. 
And Rod and his wife have recently joined First Free Church. And I hope that someday we can hear directly from him about how Jesus was faithful in those darkest hours. Rod told me about an education bill that was being taken up by the House while he was the speaker. There was one member who agreed that the bill would make good law, and he said he wanted to support it, but he had an issue. He said that four, four of his constituents, people who had come to his rallies and held signs for him and worked on his campaign, had issues with the bill. The House member told Rod, I can't vote for this bill until I can get the support of those four constituents. That's a big influence by a small number of people on a big issue. That's an example of people getting involved with a candidate and then being represented in the governing process. Michael Ware, the Obama staffer who wrote Reclaiming Hope, takes this idea to a couple of powerful conclusions. Here's the first. The Republican Party needs now more than ever Christians advocating from within for a position, for example, on immigration reform that represents human dignity and takes the consequences of deportation on families seriously. Christians who are Republicans have the opportunity to shape policy that will treat immigrants as people made in the image of God and deserving of that dignity. Christians who are Republicans have the opportunity to shape policy on other issues as well, like racial reconciliation. If you're a Republican or lean Republican, you can speak to issues where the party as a whole is not particularly strong. Similar encouragement can be given to Christians who are Democrats. Here's Michael Ware again. The Democratic Party needs now more than ever Christians advocating from within for a recognition that abortion is not a moral good. And that a respect for human dignity and a sense of protecting the vulnerable extends to those not yet born. Christians who are Democrats have the opportunity to shape policy that will protect unborn children who are made in the image of God. Christians who are Democrats have the opportunity to shape policy on other issues as well, like religious freedom. If you're a Democrat or you lean Democrat, you can speak to issues where the party as a whole is not particularly strong. It may take more bravery to stand up to our friends, but we also have much more influence with our friends in the same political party than with those in the other party. And that's an influence that Christians shouldn't waste. All right, before we close in prayer, I do have an epilogue to my message. Honestly, all of this discussion about politics, while I'm incredibly interested in it, I think it's important, feels so two weeks ago. The news and our thoughts and our actions and now our mandated inactions have all been dominated by the moment-by-moment -moment progression of the coronavirus. It's been overwhelming. And when I feel overwhelmed, I turn to great thinkers who love scripture and apply it to the situations that we're facing. So I'd like to end my message with three such thinkers whose thinking and writing feels extremely relevant and helpful at the moment. The first is Martin Luther. He wrote an essay in 1527 that seems so close to what we're facing today that I actually had to go and check the original source to make sure that it wasn't an internet fake. It's not. Here's what Luther says about living through a global pandemic. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate. 
help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. The second is from an article called Don't Waste Your Cancer by John Piper. If you're like me, you've been tracking the spread of COVID-19, the number of people infected, the chances of having a mild, medium, or severe case. This near obsession with numbers offers us a false sense of control, something that Piper found during his cancer journey as well. Here's what John Piper says. The design of God in our cancer is not to train us in the rationalistic human calculation of odds. The world gets comfort from odds, not Christians. Some count their chariots, the percentages of survival, and some count their horses, side effects of treatment, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. God's design is clear from 2 Corinthians 1.9. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The aim of God in our cancer, among a thousand other good things, is to knock the props out from under our hearts so that we rely utterly on him. Finally, during World War II, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called Learning in Wartime. He explained that war didn't make death more certain because 100% of us will die. It probably didn't make it more painful because battlefield deaths were often very quick. And he said it didn't even make it less likely that people would die without a right relationship with God. Perhaps even the opposite was true. But then Lewis described what the presence of war, or in our case disease, does do to death. He said, yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us. And that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to always be aware of our mortality. I am inclined to think that they were right. My prayer for myself and for you is that these present trials will knock the props out from under our hearts. That they'll make us aware of our mortality and cause us to rely utterly on God. My prayer for those that don't know Christ is that these challenges would open up a willingness and a seeking for truth that would lead them to a saving relationship with Jesus. And my prayer is, like Luther, we will do what is expected of us, serving the world as a church with a capital C. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your word. And I thank you that in these times, you know our situation, just like you knew the situation of the Israelites in Babylon. And just like you promised them, we trust that you have plans for us, that you are here active, and involved 
and aware. And I pray that that knowledge would bring us peace, strength, and the confidence to do what you call us to do. And that you would be glorified in all. 